1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Stuart Turton on his latest novel, The Devil and the Dark Water. Stuart Turton's debut, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, has now been translated into over 30 languages and is a bestseller in Italy, Russia and Poland, as well as in the UK. It won the Costa First Novel Award and the Books of My Bag Readers Award for Best Novel and was shortlisted for the Specsavers National Book Awards and the British Book Awards Debut of the Year. And Stu's latest novel, The Devil in the Dark Water, is what we're going to be talking about today. Stuart, welcome to Little Atoms
2: thanks Neil thanks for having me.
1: First of all, tell us how you would describe this one.
2: I would describe this one as a polar opposite to seven deaths uh, to avoid any disappointment up front. This is um set in sixteen thirty four It's set on a merchant galleon that's traveling from uh, Batavia, which is now Jakarta back to Amsterdam on an eight month voyage. but as soon as it sets out to see really creepy spooky things start happening. All the clues point to there being a demon on board who's intent on sinking the ship and killing everybody. Thankfully, the world's greatest detective is on board the ship and he could solve it, except he's in chains. He's accused of a crime. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know whether he's done it or not. So it's left to his Watson-style sidekick to sort of step up and solve the mystery in his stead. And it just launches itself out of a cannon from the.
1: Before we get into the actual novel, at the end of the hardback edition of the novel, there's like a, a little sort of... Afterward, where you, you sort of talk about the concept of historical fiction and that you know, <laughs> <laughs> basically excusing yourself for a, a number of anachronisms that might have crept into this narrative um so i, I want to talk about that about just about the idea of you know of historical fiction i mean as you've just said in the description you know there's a distinct possibility that there is a demon in this novel for a start
2: yeah. I mean, that note, um, and it's titled An Apology to History and Boats. And that's because I, I mean, believe me, I went into my research, like I spent three months researching everything about this because I wanted to make the boat a part of the mystery. I wanted the boat not just to be a backdrop. I wanted it to inform the characters' actions and who these people were. I wanted to know all about the wars and the society and the, the capitalism of the time and how it would affect these people and who sat where in society and how they would relate to each other. I wanted all of that stuff. And then the moment I had it, I started chipping off the bits that I would get in the way of my plot, basically. And that's how I went about planning this novel. And it was the same with the boat. So I, I absolutely, they've, re- so this is based on a true story, or at least it took inspiration from a true story, about a shipwreck that happened in 1629, and that boat has been rebuilt in the Netherlands, and they built it according to, you know, using the original materials and the sort of original construction methods, and they sail it out occasionally, and it's wonderful, it's a floating museum, and I spent two days, crawling all over that bastard trying to get a handle on how everything worked and how it all fit together and then the same thing happened I plotted a murder mystery almost a Holmesian Agatha Christie style murder mystery on that boat and then anything that got in the way of that mystery I kind of chopped away while trying to sort of and it's a really tricky balance in that mate because I was trying to keep hold of as much as I could and cast overboard the little things that I thought, you know, that's going to make, this is going to slow this down. But I wrote the notes, I didn't want people coming to this thinking they were getting Master and Commander or Hilary Mantel. That's not the purpose of this book. The purpose of this book is to be rollicking and fun and a murder mystery.
1: Also, I guess the very sort of central concept of the Holmesian detective duo is, I guess, a sort of anachronism at this time in history.
2: Yeah, I mean it's anachronism in that. Like it's one of those things, isn't it? Like he is a superhero. He was a super. Holmes was a superhero in the Victorian era when he's set. He's going to be a superhero in this period. He'd be a superhero as we saw in the Moffat adaptations. His mm. powers are ridiculous and very inconsistent. Was the thing I came across because one of my elements of research was to go back and read back through the Sherlock Holmes stories. And it is fascinating to see how he deploys his superpower and how wonderful it is in the first two pages of every story and how it tails off the longer the story goes on until he's just spotting things written on walls and footprints that somehow Inspector Lestrade, who runs the entire policing unit, has missed. And again, if you stick demons in, as you say, and you want all those things, you're going to have to chop and change some of the genres that you can throw in there. You've got to decide what's important. And for me, as I said, the Holmesian mystery and the quality of the mystery, the quality of the characters... Because, again, the characters have agency that they would not have had in this period. There's a lot of female characters in this who have agency that they wouldn't have had. And there's nods in the story to how that might have occurred. But it was never going to happen in 1634 in these the social status that they had. So it's really just about sort of the integrity of your story over the integrity of history, to be honest.
1: Tell us a bit more about that real-life incident, the Batavia, the boat, the shipwreck that, that you mentioned. What actually happened?
2: Oh, it was horrible. It's, um... So... 1629, this ship sets out from, in reverse, it's going from Amsterdam to um, Batavia and it's carrying gold and silver and it's a month away so eight month voyage it gets a month away from batavia and it gets it drifts off course mainly because uh, the captain and the undermerchant were plotting a mutiny and they'd slowly sort of like pulled this away from the rest of the fleet the ship away from the rest of the fleet and then it gets wrecked so it hits some coral off the coast of australia they don't know that they're in uncharted waters they managed to get as many, I think they got some 200 something people off the ship and got them onto these islands that were out there. The captain then sails off in a longboat, incredible expedition, considering he doesn't know where he is and he's just used celestial navigation, and he gets himself back to Batavia to bring help back. Unfortunately, he's left the, um, the survivors in the hand of a psychopath, possibly the world's first documented psychopath. And by the time the senior officers get back to the island with help, he's managed to kill 125 people on the island and do worse to the women, as you can imagine. And it's a cult of personality. It's a really strange story. So he never actually, this psychopath never actually killed anyone himself. He's been likened to Charles Manson. He didn't bloody his own hands. He was brilliant at talking to other people into doing these things for him. And the actual moment-to-moment details of that real-life story are just horrible, but I came across that story when I was 23, backpacking around Australia, and it just never left me. It just, it always stuck with me, and I always wanted to do something with it. I just didn't want to write it straight up because it's too, it's too brutal, mate. As you're reading through it, you just want to slit your throat after 10 pages of it. It's really, really intense. And I say I wanted something fun and light, and I wanted something that wasn't as heavy as Seven Deaths. I did want something that was a bit frothier. So I couldn't do that. So I kind of scooped the guts of it out, and I kept the ship because the ship is brilliant and the period, because the period's brilliant, and some of the characters and some of the character traits from the true story, and then shoved all the Sherlock holmes know into it instead.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the historical setting then. So Batavia, as you mentioned, is um, now Jakarta, in the Indonesia. And this was the time of the um, what's called the United East India Company, the Dutch East India Company. Mm-hmm. And they are managed by... As it turns out, I didn't. I, I thought this was an invention, but it turns out a real-life group called the Gentlemen Seventeen and the Heron Seventeen. So tell us something about this period and, and what they were doing.
2: The Gentlemen Seventeen. I get that a lot. People do think they're made up because they're so wonderful and they're so awful, and it feels fictitious. But they were like the very they were the precursor to any board of directors that you're going to come across. But they were a board of directors who didn't have to follow any rules whatsoever um they were above kings they probably thought themselves above god in that time period which would have been quite a thing to say it was profit over principle in every instance and the people who went out into the world representing them went with that same mantra profit before principle and they so there's a famous story the governor general in my book who's kind of one of the boo his baddies he is based he's probably the person who's closest to his real life counterpart And his real life counterpart was the Governor General of Batavia, which meant he was the governor, because that was the most profitable outpost. He was the Governor General of that entire area. And his claim to fame, or one of them, was an incident with the Bander Islands, which were a group of people, a group of um, native people in the East Indies at that point, who refused to honor the contract to deliver spices to the Governor General. So he ordered them all slaughtered. He slaughtered the men, women, and children of that island down to a man. And then just replace them with slaves to bring the crop in, and that was seen as a perfectly sensible business practice because that would that would prevent anybody else from ever doing this in the future. He only fell out of favour in real life because he pissed off so many people that he needed more and more soldiers bringing over which cost an enormous amount of money that the gentleman 17 didn't want to pay so they weren't really bothered about the slaughter they were bothered about the cost of slaughtering people and keeping those people from slaughtering them back when you start getting into this stuff it's just it's just incredible and the really wonderful stuff is the parallels you get with modern day commerce and modern day capitalism because they are there we've changed but we haven't changed a lot and as I said, the Gentleman Seventeen traded shares. They were one of the first companies to trade shares, so they've got, I said, like they've got a setup that we would recognise today. Like so much of this period, if we were thrown into it, would feel completely alien. We would flounder, disease, death, the poverty, all these things around us. Like as a modern day people, we would really struggle. I do think if we went into that business, apart from the cutthroat principles, we would probably recognise how it all operated. We'd, we'd recognise who were the sort of like. The office workers, we'd recognise who were in charge and how the power was delegated down through the company. I think that'd probably be the place where we could survive and that was amazing.
1: The boat, so the Batavia from the real life's true story and and our boats in this in this story, the Sardam, are India men, as they're called. Mm. Um as you said, it took eight months to get from Amsterdam to Batavia. What would serving and i guess being a passenger what that boat have been like
2: it would have been absolutely awful and so the the statistic is that one in three people who took passage aboard an indium and never came back so that's not necessarily to say that they died though majority would have would have died they would have died of shipboard accident they would have died of disease they would have died of piracy or storms or something on the crossing most likely they would have got ill if they'd made it to the east indies very likely they would have been too destroyed by the crossing to want to do it again so they'd sit in these Indies and drink themselves to death or they would get malaria out there because this is almost apropos of nothing but it's one of my favorite stories that i came across and i never got to use it so i'm going to tell you it now when the gentleman 17 and the governor general their representative went out to the east indies they bought batavia there was a little village under there and they bought it and they knocked it down and decided to build the trading outpost in its stead and they wanted to make it a grand city in the style of Amsterdam. So they took uh, Amsterdam architecture and Amsterdam layout and they transported it effectively to the Indies. and they started digging up canals, like long straight canals, the way Amsterdam's got, for moving things around. They built the warehouses in the same place. The rich houses were built along the side of the Nausea canals. And they just laid it out so it would have looked like a little mini Amsterdam. But it wasn't Amsterdam. It was in the East Indies. So what they hadn't counted on was the heat and monsoon season. So before long, all those canals were stagnant. And stagnant canals attract mosquitoes. And mosquitoes have got malaria. So all the richest houses in uh, Batavia would have been death traps. If you'd moved into it, mosquitoes would have come in in the night, attracted to any candle, bit you to death and given you malaria, and you would have died. So it was just as they built these walls to sort of like keep the jungle out except the, the way they built the walls was on like unsteady foundations so the walls could just be tipped over in the monsoons so it was the most ridiculous ramshackle people not quite knowing what they were doing and how to survive in this environment and yet they were hugely successful i absolutely love it And now I've completely forgotten your question but i just wanted to tell that story <laughs> well that See, was a I, great story yeah it's just it brings me so much joy to think about it because we're surrounded on all sides by people in huge positions of power being incredibly incompetent on a daily basis and it's just permanent throughout history all the many many incredibly powerful people have been hugely incompetent and overcome by arrogance selling a little
0: or a lot
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Stuart Turton. We're talking about his latest novel, *The Devil in the Dark Water*. And, Stu, we should talk about some of the characters in a bit more depth. Um, it's a big cast of characters. It's one of those books that has a list of all of the characters at the at the mm-hmm. front to um to help you keep track. Um, let's talk about the main ones then. So, uh, main pair. Although Sammy barely barely features the book, to be fair. But Sammy Pips and and Orrin Hayes, his assistant. Tell us a bit more about them, and I guess particularly Orrin's background.
2: They're my Sherlock Holmes and uh, Watson stand in So I started with this archetype, and in the same way I did with Seven Deaths Word, I started with an Agatha Christie-style novel, and I took all the tropes, and then I wanted to mess with them and sort of confound the expectations of them because I love those books the way the readers do, so I kind of understood what the reader would be bringing to the novel, and that seemed an ideal, because the red herrings are sort of built into the reader, was the way I always saw it. So if you can just twist them around. So Sammy Pips is my Sherlock Holmes, he's the world's greatest detective, He's quite frail, he's quite small, he's very beautiful, and he's shackled. And he doesn't know what crime he's committed. So he's been humbled. And reading through the Sherlock Holmes stories, I never like Sherlock Holmes. Like, I don't like him as a character. I hate the way the world prefers to him in those novels. Like, again, I've said this... A few times, I'm sorry if anybody's heard it, but, like, Dr. Watson is a doctor and a war hero who's treated like a buffoon all the way through those novels. Uh, Inspector Lestrade couldn't find a cat up a tree, even though he runs the world's foremost policing unit. I find it's bewildering to me. So I, you know, I exercise my demons, basically, by humbling my Sherlock Holmes character (laughs) and shunting him over to one side. And it also solved the plot problem, right? Because, as I said, Sherlock Holmes and those deductive abilities are superpowers, and Conan Doyle, you can see in some of the stories Conan Doyle struggles with it because Sherlock Holmes should be able to solve every mystery in about five seconds flat because he can look at a person and know everything about them like immediately until he can't anymore. So I wanted to make my deductive investigator a bit more consistent. I wanted his powers to be uniform. And the only way you can do that is to throw him basically in a cell and keep him out of the story. And that allowed me to raise up my Watson. It allowed me to raise up Arendt, my sidekick, and bring in some other sidekicks and kind of begin to play with the idea of all of detective duos and all of those types of relationships. And Arendt is a really unwilling protagonist like he likes being a sidekick cause that's the other thing i don't like in novels mm-hmm. where the sidekick secretly wants to be the hero and then becomes the hero and the brilliant at it and that makes no sense it was like if you want to be that person just become that person you would have been that person it's fine Arin isn't that guy Arin doesn't believe in himself he doesn't have the skills that uh, sammy has what he's got is this strength and he's an ex-soldier and he's got he is a clever guy but he's not as clever so he feels himself stupid stood next to this guy so he brings all of this self-doubt to the story, and he's just, he's just a lovely character. And then next to him is Sarah Vessel, who is a noble woman with a secret. She's a passenger on the boat. She does not like the situation she's in. She's very smart. She doesn't get the chance to show that smart, that cleverness. In and then, so when this investigation turns up, she grips it with both hands and chases after it. And they almost they become the new sort of like Sherlock Holmes and Watson. So yeah, it's just. Everything in this novel is a chance for me to play with tropes and detective duos and all these things I loved growing up.
1: It was Sarah I was going to ask you to talk about next, and well, I guess you've you've done that a bit. So perhaps let's talk about because I said it is a big cast, and and there are a lot of significant figures. So just tell us about some more of the um, the significant nobles who are passengers and some of the crew, I guess.
2: Do you know what? By leaping ahead of Sarah, I've done her a disservice. So if you'll allow me, I'll just yeah, go back. Go just on. because, because actually Sarah was not, in my plan, because I plan my books very meticulously. It takes me three months to plan a book and I get it's first page to the last page. I know everything's going to happen, but I don't plan my characters and I try and find them a bit in the writing. So, and I do that by throwing them together and kind of letting them chat and see what comes out of it. And Sarah was the character who, in the initial plan, she's quite, she's like first amongst the sort of like secondary characters, if that makes sense. She was just supposed to be a suspect. And the more I wrote the book, the more she forced her way into it. The more of it she wanted, the more of this mystery she took for herself. Like it was a really interesting process. It didn't happen to me on Seven Deaths, but it happened here. And she wanted more of the story and Arendt wanted less of it. The more I wrote it, the more I realized Aaron wasn't this driving force that Sarah was going to do it. And she ends up becoming part of this triumvirate but that was her will it's really weird to talk about her as being separate to me because that makes me sound like a sociopath um with identity issues but that's really the way it felt in the writing and that was really really wonderful because i wanted to spend more time with her i wanted to i liked her cleverness i liked her drive i liked her wit i liked what she represented on that ship so it was an absolute pleasure to spend time with her and sort of give her more to do but the, all of
1: the characters all of, I said so let of, mentioned some more of the um the crew and and the the other sort of suspects, but pretty much every character that that features any in any significant way in this book is also you know they have interesting backstory, mm-hmm. you want to know more about them, you want to know more about their lives they're really well written
2: oh thanks dude yeah well, because I do have big cast because I like. I like murder mysteries with big casts. Like it's just a very basic thing that I enjoy and it's it's fun to plot a murder mystery with a big cast where almost anyone could have done it and where you've got to look intently at everybody. But then I do feel guilty if I shortchange those characters. Like I've got a really that's why my books run long, because any character I put in a book, I'm gonna give them a backstory, I'm gonna give them a secret, I'm gonna give them their own through line. And also because structurally the way I plot novels, and I don't really like red herrings. So what I do instead of red herrings, really, is I give everyone a bunch of secrets and a bunch of clues to those secrets so that the reader ends up looking at the wrong important information rather than looking at information that means absolutely nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So yeah so it serves me to have a big cast and i hopefully it serves the readers though i can that's why we always put the manifest at the front so people can you know always refer back to it if they're a bit lost as to which one of the 300 characters they're supposed to be paying attention to
1: tell us a bit more about plotting out the story then as you said it takes three months you plot it from from beginning to end what's that sort of process like for you
2: that's the best bit i love that so when I'm plotting, because I don't I don't write a word of the book until it's all plotted out. And I start with I start with the conceit and I try and work out how that would lead to a murder. So uh for seven deaths, that was how do I have a time traveling detective who can't solve a murder immediately? Because the logical thing there would be for him to follow around the victim and then just see who killed her. This one it was the conceit was what if a demon was a suspect in a murder amongst all the other people. What if one of them was a demon and that was taken seriously? Um, because this was a time of superstition and the occult and all these other things. And it seemed like an ideal chance to sort of do that and make a demon, just make almost, yeah, that I almost pictured in my head that, you know, at the be- end of every Christie where Poirot sits everyone down and then like explains who did it, like all of them, but with like the devil at the centre of the cast list. Like I almost wanted that and I was trying to plan around that. So I start with that, and then I work backwards trying to find how that would come to pass and what, you know, the structure that would allow that that moment to happen, that murder to happen, that crime to happen. And once I've got that through line, I start plotting from that point forward. And then, as I say, I start thinking about things that can distract from that. I start thinking about other things that would be happening. So I knew the boat. I knew... What kind of characters would be on the boat. I knew we'd have a captain, obviously. I knew we'd have these passengers. I knew I had the governor general for my research, a wife, a daughter, a best friend. What roles would they play? Like, what would be the naturalistic things? How would they be interacting with each other? And how could their plots kind of intersect? And then I just let it rumble around my head for three months while I'm traveling and doing my research. And I don't really stress myself out too much about it. And when I have a nice moment, like a nice incident, so in this one, you've got a big storm that arrives and I knew I wanted a big storm but I knew it had to affect the plot in some way and it had to be a big turning point in the novel so I just, like a jumble I just throw all these things in my head and just let them rattle around and then day by day I write bits out or sketch bits out and I plan every book a little bit differently each one this is really, it's quite hard to explain without getting deep in the weeds but my planning I want my planning of each book to be done in a different way because it sets the novel off in a different way it makes me think about the novel in a different way so... Uh, Seven deaths was an Excel spreadsheet that had every two minutes every character's day. This one was more like a flowchart. It was almost like you know boxes of information and lines and diagrams all going off in different directions. So yeah, once I've got all that sort of stuff, I just build day by day, minute by minute, until I've got it, and then there comes a point where it's a jigsaw and it's, it's missing fairly obvious holes there's just bits you need to fill in and that'll probably be the last week or two weeks of the planning and i'll just stir up those holes and try and fill them in and fill in the logical gaps and once i've got all that that's when i can start writing
1: seven deaths was you know as, as you mentioned a number of times obviously uh, agatha christie influenced being in a big house murder mystery we've mentioned the idea of sherlock holmes here but what other stories were an influence on this particular book
2: that's really interesting that because it do you know what like i i've never read seafaring novels and i don't really read historical fiction which puts me in a bit of a tricky bind so (laughs) so i'm like and it's not of it it's not an arrogance it's i what i had was that real life incident the idea that i wanted to set a story on a boat and then everything that leads to so my first thought when i started thinking about that was well I couldn't do another sort of Christie-style detective because a Poirot or a Marple on this boat would die immediately. They just didn't fit. They just didn't. And I thought Sherlock Holmes, I could imagine Sherlock Holmes, I thought Baskerville's thing, I could imagine Sherlock Holmes darting around it. So that kind of led me organically to think about Sherlock Holmes-style detective on this boat. That led me into the history, and then I started doing my historical research, and that led me into the superstitions. It led me into the horror aspects of the book. But again... I haven't read horror really since I was reading Gothic Horror and Stephen King. So Gothic Horror in university and Stephen King when I was like 16, like absolutely everybody else. But I don't have any particular... I'm not a okay fait with those genres. I'm not a okay fe with historical fiction. I'm not a okay fait with anything that isn't the Holmesian bit of the book. That was all just me researching and going out. And then I kind of followed the story through the genres because that's kind of where the story felt like it needed to go. The only thing I got really into was i really struggle to reconcile a murder mystery with a horror book because obviously a murder mystery wants to keep everyone alive and the horror book wants to kill everybody like they're just doing diametrically opposed things and you can't kill everybody off because you don't have any suspects left for your murder mystery so I was really, it was I got to like a year into the writing and really couldn't work out how to make these things fit together nicely. And I ended up having to go back and read a bunch of sort of gothic horror or gothic novels. I went back and I read Dracula and I read Jekyll and Hyde and I read some <laughs> um, Daphne Du Maurier and all that sort of stuff to try and piece together how I could do horror in a different way. So there, yeah, kind of...
1: there's a plot point in this book that's that's very much reminded me of Dracula. Obviously, we won't mm. talk about what that was, but yeah, I, I did wonder if. Uh
2: yeah yeah so dracula was definitely and that was very much an over nod to that that thing because mm. i don't think that moment gets enough tips of the hat the other problem is because there's a threat there's a demon on board and the demon is enacting a plan the demon's up to something if the demon doesn't do anything then the demon's not very threatening and you can't convince the reader that the demon's very threatening if nobody dies because of the ship then the ship isn't very threatening and the ship is supposed to be threatened this is a very dangerous period of history this was a very dangerous profession and I wanted that to carry on every page I wanted it to be a genuine tension about what would happen to this ensemble cast so I did, apart from once I planned out the mystery and knew who needed to be in it for the mystery I started adding extra characters who I could kill off like I did want people who could be Murdered horrifically in a variety of ways, I die horrifically in a lot of different ways because I wanted to carry that threat forward and again, then I have the problem that we talked, we alluded to earlier where it's like I don't want to leave them with nothing to do. I don't want these sudden cardboard cut out characters to turn up to die like so I had to give them backstory and I had to weave them in and make them interesting. so yeah, there's a reason why my books are was one hundred and thirty thousand words long <laughs> um Can
1: I get you to to read us a bit?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's very unfair, though, because the audiobook is written as uh, read by Julian Ryan Tutt, who is magnificent, and then these soft, scouse vowels are about to turn up, so apologies. <laughs> Aaron Hayes howled in pain as a rock slammed into his massive back. Another whistled by his ear, a third striking his knee, causing him to stumble, bringing cheers from the pitiless mob who were already searching the ground for more missiles to throw. Hundreds of them were being held back by the city watch, their spittle flapped lips shouting insults, their eyes black with malice. Take shelter for pity's sake, implored Sammy Pips over the din, his manacles flashing in the sunlight as he staggered across the dusty ground. It's me they want. Aaron was twice the height and half again the width of most men in Batavia, including Pips. Although not a prisoner himself, he'd placed his large body between the crowd and his much smaller friend, offering them only a sliver of target to aim at. The bird and the Sparrow had been nicknamed before Sammy's fall. Never before had it appeared so true. Pips was been taken from the dungeons to the harbour, where a ship waited to transport him to Amsterdam. Four musketeers were escorting them, but they were keeping their distance, wary of becoming targets themselves. You pay me to protect you, snarled Aaron, wiping the dusty sweat from his eyes as he tried to gauge the distance to safety. I'll do it until I can't anymore. The harbour lay behind a huge set of gates at the far end of Batavia's central boulevard. Once those gates closed behind them, they'd be beyond the crowd's reach. Unfortunately, they were at the tail end of a long procession moving slowly in the heat. The gates seemed no closer now than when they'd left the humid dampness of the dungeon at midday. A rock thudded into the ground at Aaron's feet, spraying his boots with dry dirt. Another ricocheted off Sammy's chains. Traders were selling them out of sacks and making good coin doing it. "'Damn, Batavia!' snarled Aaron. "'Bastards can't abide an empty pocket!' On a normal day, these people would be buying from the bakers, tailors, cordwainers, binders and candle makers lining the boulevard. They'd be smiling and laughing, grumbling about the infernal heat. But manacle a man, offer him up to torment, and even the meekest soul surrendered itself to the devil.
1: So I've been talking to Stuart Turton. We've been talking about his latest novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury Raven. Stuart, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it.
2: Thanks, Neil. I appreciate it, mate.